Uh, people are different. I'm always fascinated by the fact that uh, siblings in the same family who share the same gene pool, who are raised in the same household and have been raised in a common social environment can be so different. I grew up with two brothers. The three of us couldn't be more different. In fact, we kind of follow the birth order stereotypes. As the oldest, I was serious and responsible, academic achiever, the wannabe leader, leader, the Eagle Scout type, you know, that just has to do the right thing, live by my values. I tried to stay out of trouble. I was and I am a bit bookish and actually somewhat of an introvert. My baby brother, Lynn, the youngest, is a total extrovert. I mean, he is out there on the social spectrum. That guy knows everybody in town. No matter where you go with him, he'll know somebody. He's the life of the party, the president of his fraternity at UW. He has a great sense of humor and was always kind of a wild and crazy guy in kind of a fun way. If truth be known, my little brother was Budman at Husky football games. <laughs> he would don, he would go into a honeypot, <laughs> and then he would come out as a crusader, blue and red with a red cape. And he, along with Captain Husky, would lead cheers in the stands, <laughs> make a spectacle of himself. And then he would come and sit next to me, <laughs> his reserved minister brother. And he'd say, how's it with God? Well, my brother's in the restaurant business, you know, and that suits him really well. My middle brother, Clay, is the quiet one, spent hours in his room growing up learning to master the guitar, the guitar so he is a professional guitarist. He owns his own music and video production studio in Bend, Oregon. He's really creative. Uh, he is, uh, uh, you know, his jingles were played all over the Central Oregon area, Les Schwab tires and so on. Um, and uh, I know I just admire his music ability. The three of us, when we get together, and we often laugh, you know, that we could start our own wedding business. You know, like I could officiate at weddings, and my middle brother Clay could provide the music, and my little brother could do all the catering <laughs> and provide humor at the same time. Same family, but um, very different. And so it is, you know, with us all, right? People are fascinating because we're all so unique. We all have different personalities and temperaments. Wouldn't you think, therefore, that when it comes to connecting with God, that each of us would experience God's presence and relate to Him in different ways? So often in the desire to connect people with God, the church takes a one-size-all approach to spiritual growth, you know, kind of like a, a doctor who prescribes only one medicine for a, a wide variety of ailments. So we give parishioners the same generic prescription, 
If you want to connect with God, then be sure to have a ham- an ample quiet time. You know, in the morning, wake up and read your Bible and pray and uh, maybe take a class. And of course, don't neglect worship. But, you know, maybe that's not enough to cause real spiritual growth in us. God wants to be fully present to you and to me. And for that to happen, we must approach God in a way that corresponds to the way we are wired. Therefore, to, to, uh, it's, it's important that we discover our own spiritual pathways to God, where we naturally sense God's presence and experience spiritual growth. We each have at least one or two spiritual pathways where we best connect with God. Uh, others, you know, our other pathways are not natural to us, but we would do well to stretch into some of those things. Some of us best connect with God through the intellect, through study, the mind. Some through the emotions. It's a very unemotional gut feeling. Uh, for some, it's through service to others. For some, it's getting caught up in a righteous cause. Uh, for some, it's being in relationship with others. For some, it's just living a quiet life of contemplation and prayer. So, in, in the next few weeks, I'd like to explore some of these spiritual pathways uh, with a view to appreciating not only our own ways that we connect with God and leaning into those things, but also appreciating the, 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 the spiritual pathways that others are walking, which enables them to grow in their relationship to Christ. So this morning, I want to begin with uh, the creation pathway. Those who relate to this pathway are the nature lovers among us. These are the people that can't wait to get outside in order to admire the world God has made. In Greek mythology, there is a character by the name of Actaeon who could not be defeated in wrestling even by Hercules because each time he touched the earth, he would spring to life again. So for those on the creation pathway, there is something life-giving about nature. Being outdoors just replenishes uh, uh, and energizes them. They can't stand being cooped up in a building on a nice day. They would like nothing better than to take a hike in the woods or to go camping by a lake or beachcombing at the ocean or visiting a national park. You know, creation pathway people, they're the kind of the granola people, right? They're out, outdoors. I have to admit that this particular creation pathway was tainted for me. As uh, Valen and I were married, right after we got married, we had our honeymoon in Sun River, Oregon. We were living in the lap of luxury for a week. It was incredible. But then, you know, being a youth leader in a church in North Portland, for some reason, we decided that we would lead a group of 20 kids out into the Three Sisters Wilderness of Oregon. I mean, this was a real backpacking trip. I mean, we were like miles from anywhere, and we were going to be there for a week. So... (laughs) As often happens in Oregon, the rain began to fall, and it rained, and it rained, and rained. You know, I'm an Eagle Scout. I thought I had the camping thing down, but no, it rained and rained and rained. It never stopped. Sleeping bags got wet. The tents got all wet. I had kids crying 
And we ended up uh, in a tent. Well, a lot of us ended up in a tent. There were about nine of us in a pup tent <laughs> trying to keep warm. And when we wanted to turn over and sleep, we had to ask the person next to us if they would turn over. I mean, but if there was wet everywhere. I mean, it was a nightmare. So that's why I never took my kids camping, ever. <laughs> Eagle Scout that I am, no way. So our idea of camping is a really th three, four-star hotel. <laughs> it was so nice, you know, to come back from that hiking trip and then take a warm shower. A warm shower never felt so good. So the creation pathway, <laughs> sometimes, sometimes not, but you won't find me camping out in the woods. For those on the creation pathway, they feel closest to God in nature. Uh, nature gives, gives them a sense of awe of being in the very presence of God Himself. I mean, they readily identify with the psalmist who proclaimed Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the, of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It's like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. Psalm 19, verses 1 through 6. I like the way Eugene Peterson uh, renders this passage in his contemporary version of the Bible. He says, God's glory is on tour in the skies. Godcraft on exhibit across the horizon. Madam Day holds classes every morning. Professor Knight lectures each evening. Their words aren't heard. Their voices aren't recorded. But their silence fills the earth. Unspoken truth is spoken everywhere. The incredible beauty we see all around us speaks volumes of God's majesty and God's glory. The Apostle Paul declares that it's so obvious that no one, that no one has any excuse for not believing in God or worshiping God. For he says in his letter to the Romans, ever since the creation of the world, his eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, have been understood and seen through the things he has made, so they are without excuse. John Calvin, one of the great reformers, uh, one of the forefathers of our faith, spoke of creation as this dazzling theater. We have been placed in a dazzling theater to enjoy. And he wrote, Wherever you cast your eyes, there is no spot in the universe wherein you cannot discern at least some sparks of His glory. The skillful ordering of the universe is for us a sort of mirror in which we can contemplate God who is otherwise invisible. In uh, 1998, 77-year-old John Glenn you know, returned to space. And almost immediately upon his return, he was at a news conference and he was saying at this, at this news conference, to look out at this kind of creation, to not believe in God is to me impossible. And you know that sentiment is pretty common 
among astronauts. James Irwin came back from walking on the moon, convinced that he should devote the rest of his life to sharing the good news about Jesus Christ. He said, I felt the power of God as I'd never felt before. He resigned as an astronaut and started the High Flight Foundation, which is uh, um, an evangelistic outreach endeavor. Buzz Aldrin, who was an elder in his Presbyterian church, decided as one of his first acts during man's first landing on the moon to serve himself communion. He says, in the one-sixth gravity of the moon, the wine slowly curled and gracefully came up the side of the cup. Whoa. But, you know, uh, of course, it's, you know, spectacular is all around us here on earth, right? I mean, I mean, who has not gone to the Grand Canyon and to the Niagara Falls and, um, you know, Yosemite or, you know, Yellowstone and not marvel at God's credible creation? I remember seeing Niagara Falls for the first time shortly, well, a while back. Man, I, we were bowled over. I mean, the Canadian side of the Niagara Falls, I mean, that is incredible. Or to see the Grand Canyon for the first time. You know, uh, if you want to know if you're on the creation pathway, you, you, if you're on that pathway, you not only admire the canyon, but you want to go down. <laughs> you want to take the burrow, you know, you want to go down. You want to go camping down there. You know how if you don't have the creation pathway, you know what you do? You go to the gift shop. Which is where most people, they actually spend more time in the gift shop than they do looking at the Grand Canyon. What's up with that? I mean, <laughs> but, you know, you don't have to go to the spectacular things, you know. I mean, just there's spectacular all around, right? I mean, the fall colors and, uh, you know, uh, I noticed a spider was, was weaving this intricate web right outside our back door. Like, wow, isn't that cool? So everywhere you look, God's handiwork is to be admired. It's no wonder so many feel closest to God. Being out there, outdoors, being in creation opens your soul to the Creator and makes you thankful you are alive. So when you think of some biblical examples of people who were walking that creation pathway, enabling them to connect with God in such a natural way, David in the Old Testament immediately comes to mind. Psalm 19 that we just read is attributed to him. Uh, so many of the other psalms attributed to him speak of God's glory and creation. We, uh, as a young shepherd, you know, David would have lived very close to nature on the hillside, you know, and uh, we can imagine him looking up into the night sky and saying, O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is thy name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars that you have established, what are human beings? that you are mindful of them, mortals, that you care for them. You know, the best example of someone who lived the creation pathway was probably Jesus Himself. You know, now back then, of course, you automatically were closer to earth, to nature, right? I mean, a lot of your time was spent outdoors. But still, in Jesus' teaching, there are so many references to creation. You know, look at the birds, you know, look at the flowers of the field. You know, as he taught, full of illustrations drawn from nature. Jesus certainly didn't confine his teaching to the synagogue or to a temple. And as you know, Jesus found solitude in the hills or in a garden. 
So many other folks down through the ages uh, have found nature to be life-giving and spiritually renewing. I think of St. Francis of Assisi, who wrote so eloquently of the beauty and glory of God's creation in his classic canticle of Brother Sun and Sister Moon. The writer of the well-known hymn, How Great Thou Art, must have been walking the creation pathway. You know the words, right? O Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds Thy hands have made. I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, Thy power throughout the universe displayed. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to Thee, how great Thou art, how great Thou art. I could go on. Oh, yeah, thank you. <laughs> so, if you feel closest to God outdoors in nature, then by all means, lean into that pathway. I mean, get outside as much as you can. It will enrich your soul. I mean, isn't it wonderful that we live in uh, this part of the country? I mean, the beautiful Pacific Northwest where there's so many incredible opportunities to enjoy nature, not all around us, actually. But even as we lift up the virtues of the creation pathway, it's good to be mindful of the dangers so we don't neglect other means to get, that, to get connected to God as well. And one of the dangers is individualism. That is, it's easy to say, well, you know, I'll just worship God out here in the woods. I don't need the church. I don't need to be with others. I can pray and worship right here in these beautiful surroundings. At the turn of the 20th century, a woman by the name of Ella Higginson of Portland, Oregon, she's a real, you know, a real Northwesterner, expressed this sentiment, I can just worship outdoors in a poem that she called God's Creed. And and part of it reads, Forgive me that I cannot kneel and worship in this pew, for I have knelt in western dawns when the stars were large and few, and the only fonts God gave me were the deep leaves filled with dew. And so it is I worship best with only the soft air about me and the sun's warm glow upon my brow and hair, for then my very heart and soul mount upwards in swift prayer. Well, I mean, that's all very well and good, but God has made us so that we cannot grow spiritually without the encouragement and the support of others. And if our worship takes place, our worship of God takes place only in nature, our knowledge of God is truncated. For nature cannot reveal the will of God. Yes, we become aware of God's majesty and glory in nature, but how could God ever challenge you? Challenge you to live differently. Without God's Word in Scripture, we would know precious little about God. We would know nothing of the gospel. We would know nothing about hope or salvation or meaning or purpose. We would never receive any comfort or any correction. Communing with God is wonderful. But God would have us worship Him together so that together we might attend to the hearing of the Word of God, so that we might encourage one another in the living of that Word, so that what we might be about the Father's business, the will of God. And in truth, you know, actually, you know, so nature points to God's majesty and glory, but it speaks 
you know, not... Uh, it, nature also uh, is a dangerous place. There is ugliness in nature. I mean, there are predators. Uh, the jungle is not a particularly safe place to be. Hurricanes, earthquakes, you know, so there's that, there's that other side of nature. So, so nature does not speak unambiguously of God that way. Now, if your spiritual pathway is that of creation, beware of individualism. And secondly, don't become so enamored with nature that you begin to worship the creation rather than the Creator. And this is a particular temptation in the Pacific Northwest, where so much natural beauty resides. You know, Christianity was never well established here. Uh, churches historically have been quite weak. There have been, you know, the, the Christian schools have been rather sparse. You know, uh, established Christianity just isn't part of our, our uh, framework here in the, in the Northwest. Uh, there are more religiously unaffiliated people in our section of the country than in anywhere else in our country. You probably heard that. These are people that we call the nuns, N-O-N-E-S. They say that they have no religious affiliation whatsoever. So in the Seattle metropolitan area, 33% of all people say they are religiously unaffiliated. They don't identify with Christianity or Islam or any other main religion. They just don't have a religion. Actually, Portland is worse. Like 43% of the people in the Portland area are religiously unaffiliated. Very different, of course, than in the South, right? This is a very strange culture we live in here in the Pacific Northwest. It's difficult. But, you know, all of, all of the nuns, and they're growing, only 8% really profess to be atheists. So the rest of them would say, well, I'm religiously unaffiliated, but I'm very spiritual. I'm spiritual. But, and for many, that spirituality is tied to nature. In fact, according to some experts who study religious trends, nature religion may well be the collective spiritual identity of the Pacific Northwest. That doesn't surprise you, does it? Nature religion. You know, so these people are very spiritual, but it's also a very nebulous kind of a spirituality. It's a spirituality centered on the care of the earth. It's a popular religiosity that makes nature sacred, and its adherent, 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 adherents practice a rigid, all-encompassing environmentalism with its own kind of orthodoxy that one should never challenge. It becomes a religion for people. Now, Christians obviously care about creation. We're called to be good stewards of God's creation. And so, this whole environmental thing is a point of conversation for, for people. We have some common interests with non-believers, non-Christians. But sometimes our devotion to Mother Earth can cross a line so that we end up worshiping the earth rather than the one who created the earth. And such worship is called pantheism. Pantheism comes from two Greek words, right? Pan meaning all and theism meaning God. All is God. Uh, so, pantheists believe that God is found in all things. God doesn't stand apart from His creation as we find in Scripture, but rather God inhabits His creation so that everything is part of God. Rocks and trees and you and me, God is in each of us. 
God is not transcendent, but God, no, He's imminent in all of us and in the earth. So the difference here is this. Psalm 24, verse 1 reads, the earth is the Lord's. Pantheism says, the Lord is the earth. So being outdoors and uh, reveling in the beauty of nature creates awe. And that awe should always be directed to the one who made all things and who has created such beauty for us to enjoy. Writer Matthew Fox, I like what he says. He says, the creator God has spread out for our delight a banquet, a banquet of rivers and lakes, of rain and sunshine, of rich earth and of amazing flowers, of handsome trees and of dancing fishes, of contemplative animals and of whistling winds, of dry and wet seasons, of cold and hot climates. And so are we, blessings ourselves, invited to the banquet. Our eyes continually feast on beauty, and God planned it that way for our enjoyment. Someone has said, there's not one blade of grass, there's no color in this world that is not intended to make us rejoice. Isn't it amazing that God should love us so much that we should be able to enjoy the beauty of what He has made? So, do you feel most spiritually alive and connected to God when you are outdoors? Great! Lean into that pathway, but don't go so far down that pathway that you ignore other important pathways to connect with God, pathways that we will explore in upcoming sermons. So here's a little test that you can take on yourself to see if you are walking the creation pathway. And is the following true for you? I feel closer to God when I'm surrounded by what He has made, the mountains, the forests, or the ocean. I feel cut off if I have to spend too much time indoors, just listening to speakers or singing songs. Nothing makes me feel closer to God than being outside. Uh, these questions you can ask yourself. I would rather worship God by spending an hour beside a small brook than by participating in a group service. Or if I could escape to a garden to pray on a cold day, walk through a meadow on a warm day, and take a trip by myself to the mountains on another day, I would be very happy. A couple more. A book called Nature Sanctuaries, a picture book, would be appealing to me. And seeing God's beauty in nature is more moving to me than understanding new concepts, participating in a formal religious service, or participating in social causes. So if you answered yes to most of these, then get thee out of doors as soon as possible. <laughs> the God of creation will meet you there. Amen? Amen. Amen.